0: From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something.
1: I grew up in a very drug-free house. There was no recreational drug use. It was rare that someone would even take an Advil or a Tylenol. So I didn't have a lot of experience with drugs.
0: This is Andrew Orvidal. He's a comedian and storyteller based in Denver.
1: But as soon as I became like a tween, I knew that marijuana was a thing, and, and so I'd have these conversations with my mom about it. She told me it was a powerful hallucinogen. She was like, yeah, I tried it like once, and it's just powerful She basically described like, the rawest acid you've ever heard in your life. And so it terrified me. So I didn't go near the pot. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to, like, blow my mind on this pot.
0: But eventually, when he was a teenager, growing up in pre-legalization Colorado, his curiosity got the best of him.
1: I smoked some pot and then enjoyed a slice of pie that it made taste better. It did not. It did not wreck my brain. And then I had a a, a great little pothead phase in the 90s and smoked a, t- a lot of pot.
0: After that phase, Andrew kind of stayed away from pot for a while, like 15 years. And in that 15 years, a lot changed. Weed became legal in multiple states and. In that time, the stuff became more potent. And then a couple of years ago, Andrew signed on to a comedy festival in Oregon. And the shtick of that show was that all the performers had to be stoned during their set.
1: So the night of the show, everyone's getting high backstage. They're passing around these joints. I take a hit. It's it's great. It's fine. I take another hit. All right. I should I should stop and wait, you know, and let it kick in. But everyone's passing around these joints. Everyone's having the time of their life. And I'm like... I'll just take one more hit. I'm not really feeling it. I'll just take another hit.
0: You can probably see where this is going. Andrew got very, very high. And while he was backstage getting ready for his set, he noticed something weird.
1: As I'm pacing around backstage, I see something out of the corner of my eye on the floor and I don't know what it is, but it's gross. And I'm like, don't look at it. Don't look down. Just keep walking by it. It's nothing. Don't look down. But of course, I look down. I have to look down. And it's like, it's like guts or something. It looks like an organ that's been taken out of someone's abdomen and like put on the floor here and like, and stepped on.
0: Andrew started freaking out. I was just like, ah, my brain just melted down. Andrew's mom, as it turns out, was a little bit right that marijuana turned out to be a powerful hallucinogen. It turned something pretty ordinary into this gruesome crime scene.
1: It turned out, in hindsight, uh, it was a banana slug, which they have in Oregon, that had apparently oozed its way into the venue and got stepped on.
0: I guess mother truly does know best. Andrew told that story in a recent virtual live event that we hosted called My Family On Something. And today, I've got a little late Christmas present for you, dear listener. A special bonus episode featuring some of the stories from that night. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. During our live event, there was joy, sorrow, anger, and hilarity. And you know, it's not a surprise that the comedians who shared stories that night made us laugh. But I was also amazed at how personal some of these stories were. And those are the ones that I'd like to share with you today. And I'll have a little help presenting this episode. You know, Andrew, our friend who was traumatized by a banana slug. Well, he was actually my co-host for this event. And he's going to introduce our first story.
1: Our next storyteller, she's one of my favorite storytellers and comedians here in Denver. She is the co-host of the Empty Girlfriend podcast. And she also co-founded an all-woman comedy troupe called The Pussy Bros., this is a story by Christy Buckley, And an, another note on the story, although Christy is a very funny comedian, this is not a funny story, but it is an important story. And I'm very grateful that she shared it with us for the show.
2: My story starts my freshman year of college. I was walking into the third week of my women's studies class with the most intimidating professor I maybe ever had she had short black hair she interrupted you she was really forceful and she had a rolling stone tattoo on her shin that's all i know that's what i remember we walked into the class that day and we started a discussion about how we learn our gender norms and we learn all of our behaviors mostly from our parents and girls usually learn stuff more from their mom and boys learn stuff more from their dad and i just started feeling agitated, and I didn't like that information, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I raised my hand, and I said, "Uh, well, I was raised by my dad, like, and she interrupted me, she was like, like? And she's like, you sound so unintelligent. And uh, I just froze right there in the middle of class, and I said, I'm not gonna go on. You're just trying to embarrass me. And I was shaking, and I was so upset, and I just I was just shocked that somebody talked to me that way. Uh, it had been such a long time since somebody had talked to me that way. But the funny thing is, with that question of, I was raised by a single dad, how would that affect my behavior? That's not even true. I wasn't raised just by a single dad. I was raised by my dad and a stepmom for 10 years. I met her when I was five, and she left uh, when I was 15. I have since gone on to do comedy. I've done plenty of storytelling. I've talked about every person in my family, but I have yet to write a joke about my stepmom or ever talk about her. I still get on stage, and I tell everybody that I was raised by a single dad. And I realized that this time in this classroom was the first time I did that. I tried to erase the fact that my stepmom raised me so much. I tried to figure out what that was. And I realized that when you are raised by a drug addict, you tend to erase them. The drug erases them. I know in my mind that there had to be some good things. She had to have done stuff for us and that there was probably good memories and there were laughs. There had to have been. But honestly, because of her opiate addiction, that's not what I remember. I remember praying that she wouldn't fall asleep at the wheel on our drive home. And I remember her picking at her skin for hours in the mirror and then she would pick at mine. I remember her slurring her words or her eyes rolling around in her head. More than anything, I remember the mood swings. Just wondering what mood she was going to be in that day. Was she going to be angry? Was she going to be euphoric? Was she going to be verbally abusive? I remember her telling me, I hope you never have kids. You'd be a terrible parent. You're the worst kid I've ever met. I wish I could hit you. I think you're a terrible person, all when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Now, now that we've talked about opiate addiction as a country and started to address it, I know that that's the drugs, but when you are that young at that time, you're small and you wonder if it really is you and if something really is wrong with you. I met my stepmom when I was five years old and there's something about that When you meet somebody as a child, you remain that tiny child. Like You remain the age that you were when you met them forever, it seems like. And I always felt so powerless against her. Unfortunately, my dad didn't stick up for me much. I remember her telling me, I'm leaving your dad because you're such a terrible person. I can't stand to be with him. And he would beg me to ask her to stay. And I just had no power. I did it because he asked me to... I did it because I thought I was supposed to. I did it because I thought I was a bad person, but actually I was just a kid. And so she left when I was 15. Other people came and went, as far as people my dad dated, also people who had drug issues, but I never really interacted with them as much. I tried to stay out of the house, things like that. When I got to college in this freshman year, I kind of felt like I was away from that and I was free of that behavior and that treatment. And when I sat in this class and she stopped me in the middle of my question about being raised by a single dad and she embarrassed me, I just felt in that moment, like I couldn't take it anymore. Like it was just a bad memory. And she goes like, like, and I just said, you're so, you're embarrassing me. Do not talk to me that way. I'm not gonna participate in this class anymore. And I sat in that class the rest of the time, just my blood boiling. I feel like my skin got splotchy. I like had hives. I was just like so stressed and so triggered. And at the end of class, she hung on to my paper last, all the other students had left. She handed me my paper and she said, it takes a lot of balls to stand up to me. And I really respect that. I'm sorry that I treated you that way. And I walked out of that room that day just feeling like a weight had been lifted. I'll never be able to erase the fact that I was raised largely by a drug addict, but I'm not that five-year-old child. Like, as an adult, I get to choose how people treat me. And if you are being raised by somebody who's a drug addict, just know that their drug is not you. It's not, it doesn't make you, you, the way they treat you doesn't, doesn't reflect reality. And you get to choose as soon as you grow up to be treated the way that you want to be treated. That
1: was comedian
0: Christy Buckley. After she finished sharing her story, Andrew asked her a question that was on all of our minds.
1: If you encountered your stepmother again, what would you say to her?
0: Well, I
1: would
2: probably puke immediately. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I don't know. I've thought about that. I've had nightmares about it. <laughs> but I, uh, I know I'm laughing, but I'm like, <laughs> okay. Anyway. Um, no, uh, I hope I don't honestly but I honestly would just tell I would probably do exactly like what I told that professor almost is just like you don't the way you treated me wasn't right you don't I hope you don't get to treat anyone else that way you shouldn't you were wrong I wasn't wrong it's almost like Voldemort or whatever like I don't even want to say her name or like conjure (laughs) I'm like, you're just asking her to seek you out. No, Uh, but but if that happened, I'm sure it would be like a healing thing for me, at least. I don't know if it would be a positive interaction, but I still think that I would handle myself in a way that would be positive. But hopefully she's just gotten help and hasn't uh, continued to hurt other people. I don't know. So that's my hope for her.
0: I Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, comedian Janae Burris looks back on her childhood growing up in Los Angeles, from the crack epidemic to the DARE program, and how her views on drugs have changed since then. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make on something possible— Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything, from CBD, to cooking with cannabis, to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to OnSomething.org, and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. The last story I'd like to share with you from our live event comes from actor and comedian Janae Burris. She used to co-host the Denver Post's Cannabis Show. Now she's based out of California. And she sent us this story from her home on a busy street in L.A.
3: Uh, My family came to South Central in the 1950s. They moved to California as part of the Great Migration. A lot of Black folks were leaving the South to get away from racism, to find some economic advancements, and they did pretty well for themselves. But when they got to LA, they were met with redlining, which relegated Black folks to certain neighborhoods like Watts, South Central, Inglewood, Compton. And, uh, but my grandmothers, both of them, bought houses. Uh, my great grandmother bought a house. Um, my grandfather owned a muffler shop in Compton. And folks were doing okay. My dad even bought a house in the 80s. And the 80s, though, is when the crack epidemic hit South Central, 70s and 80s. And, um, the war on drugs brought crack to our doorsteps. And so it was not unusual to know people in your community who were affected by the war on drugs. You know, you have a cousin in jail for selling crack or weed. You have a a neighbor who lost their nursing license because of drug abuse, a teacher who no longer works because of addiction, you know. And uh, it also, the 80s, I was part of that upcoming, generation of kids uh, in the dare program you know we were being raised to be warriors against drugs we were we were you know taught that Nancy Reagan somehow cared about us we were like Nancy Reagan's youth that's, uh, that's what we like to call ourselves and so that plus the lessons in church about the morality of drug use made it pretty simple. You know, it was, a, it was a battle of good versus evil. Good people don't do drugs, bad people do drugs. We knew nothing about addiction. We knew nothing about uh, medical issues around drug addiction. We knew nothing about the socioeconomic issues around drug addiction. We didn't know who was pumping crack into our neighborhoods or why they were pumping crack into our neighborhoods, who taught us the chemistry to turn cocaine into crack, who created the laws to make a uh, punishment for crack, way more severe than punishment for cocaine. We didn't know any of that. We were just told that the power was within us to just say no, just say no. It's all a mental thing for good and moral folks to just say no. So there was that and that was my understanding as a kid. I'm a good person, I'm not gonna do drugs. And if you're doing drugs, you're not a good person. That was my judgment as a child. And I remember when my uncle came to live with us um, I was in third grade. He didn't come to live. He came to visit and then he never left. Uh, and, and being that my father was one of the people in the family who owned a home, sometimes family would come stay with us. You know, somebody's out of college. They stay with us. Somebody's out of jail. They stay with us. Somebody's just visiting from the South. They stay with us. My uncle just, I ended up moving up before he did. And uh, I remember when he showed up at our door, I was the one to greet him at the door and I saw him. I had never met him. It was exciting. And I remember saying, Mom, your brother's here. I was like so excited. I had no idea that he had been in prison for a while. And that's why he was suddenly there on our doorstep. And my uncle was, you know, kind of well-liked guy in the neighborhood. People liked him. He was jolly. He was upbeat, but he had a problem. He was addicted to crack. And you know, when he didn't have any money, then he really couldn't do his drugs. And so, at those points, he was a generally nice guy, but sometimes he was on something and he wasn't a nice guy. And I always struggled with my mother, who tried to help me understand that, in her perspective, he was a different person on drugs, you know, and you really couldn't blame him for his behavior while he was being affected by the drugs. For me as a child. I, I kind of was like, well, no, he's not a good person because he does drugs, you know, not fully understanding addiction. But also as a child, I was the same person, whether he was on drugs or not on drugs, I was the same person. So why should I have to suffer his abuse when he is on something? And basically he harassed me, you know, made me feel uncomfortable in my body. Growing up, it was, it was hard to be in my home with this guy, crowding me out, you know, wanting to be invisible growing up. And I remember being about 14 when he said something truly disgusting to me. But at that point, I had put up with him for so long. I had been fighting him, battling him for so long that this particular day, I just wasn't having it. He said something so gross to me. I was upset and I grabbed my little sisters and I left the house. I went to see my neighbor and I spilled my guts about how I was feeling about him. And she says to me, you know, sweetly, thoughtfully, oh, honey, he's probably on something. Yeah. He is on something. I know that. What difference does that make? Why should I suffer that? Um Years later, my uncle passed away probably like 10 years ago. He had cancer and he passed away and I really didn't feel anything about it. I had no no I have no feelings about it. I only went to the service because my mother asked me to attend the service. And uh, I was basically like bye, good riddance to my childhood or to my childhood bully. And um, I was insensitive to to my mother's pain of losing her brother, unfortunately. I just couldn't see it clearly. And I can remember just a few years ago, though, I had a dream about my uncle. And I don't know if you're a person, or if if you believe in dreams, like that they can be prophetic or powerful, or that there may be just, you know, whatever's in your head needing to come out and be resolved, but my uncle appeared to me in a dream and he was clean. He was clean, he was thin, he was healthy. He looked great, he was happy. There was joy emanating from him. I'm super into dreams, okay? (laughs) But um, he apologized to me. He apologized to me, my adult self. He apologized for making my life hard. He apologized for not being good to me. And I didn't know I needed it, but turns out I really, really needed it. It humanized him. It allowed me to see him as a human being who had been suffering. And and I survived his years of bullying and harassment. And I'm I'm a fine, okay, adult human being, but um, I just now understand that um, someone being on something doesn't make them a complete monster. They are being affected. They are being affected by it. So he could have been better to me, but um, it didn't matter that he was on something and, it, and he wasn't a total trash human being.
0: Is Janae Burris. You can check out more of her work on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at Negative Negro. You can also check out Christy Buckley, our other storyteller from this episode. Her handle is That's C-A-B-U-C-H-S-Y. And of course, thank you so, so much to Andrew Orvidal for helping host this event, for lining up our storytellers. And also, thank you to the Kendall Smith, the Wizard of All Things event at CPR. He helped organize this and put the whole thing together. Now, I know what your next question is going to be. Uh, Where's season three of On Something? On Something season three is coming to a feed near you this spring. So stay subscribed and thanks for listening.